and welcome to Second Rate Film School. Today we're back again to cover the second half of the oral history of the banned Nickelodeon movie, Crybaby Lane. If you haven't already watched the first part where we delve into the backstory in the movie itself, check the link out below. Today we're going to be focusing on the backlash, banishment, rediscovery, and the ultimate legacy of the movie now 21 years on. To help me cover all that is the film's director, co-writer, and executive producer, Peter Lauer. Hello. Executive producer and co-writer, Bob Mittenthal. Hey. And finally, director of photography, John Inwood. Welcome back, guys. So let's dive right into the backlash the movie received post-premiere. So as a refresher, the movie premiered on October 28th in the year 2000 on Nickelodeon. Nick heavily promoted the movie and even brought in Melissa Joan Hart to be the host of Snick that night to bring in some star power. While the movie didn't have a huge budget, they did spend a fair amount on it and really were hyping it up. Saturday, Nickelodeon brings you its first ever Halloween movie for television. Cry Baby Lane, Saturday at 9, 8 central in a special Halloween snick. Which is weird that it then faded away and was hidden for so many years. The often reported story is that the following day, Nickelodeon was flooded with phone calls from angry parents whose kids had been traumatized by how frightening the movie was. Despite the fact that this claim is the backbone of literally the entire legend, I can't actually find any concrete evidence that this is true. This isn't like the infamous ghost watch incident in the UK back in 1992 where there were dozens of newspaper articles and shows talking about in the following months. I can't find anything. So take that with a grain of salt. Now is the movie truly too scary for kids? Do the guys go way too far here? Mm, it's kind of hard to say and post rediscovery a lot of people are becoming unsure about that. You know, on Reddit, they like they're they're talking. They talked about the movie after it was finally found and reshown, and people were like, "Well, that was like you know, what we're making such a big deal about. It. It's just like an episode of like you know, are you afraid of the dark?" And it's like, no, it's not. It's like <laughs> there's like so much more like richness, you know, and depth, and like you know, I I couldn't believe like what you know what what you know what we achieved with these characters. Um, you know, I mean, it's not a flawless movie to be sure. Not, not all the performances are, are what we would have wanted them to be, but it's, you know, it's not like, you know, are you afraid of the dark, you know, <laughs> goosebumps or something like that. Now I will say whenever I show this to people for the first time, I do always preface it by saying, you as an adult will not be scared by this. But remember, this was aimed at children. And when you look at it from that lens, the movie is pretty damn scary. Now, was it too scary to ever be aired on Nickelodeon in the first place? That's where things get dicey. Yes, if you just compare this in a vacuum to things like Rugrats, Hey Arnold, Doug, Ren and Stimpy, yeah, this is a lot scarier than the typical fairs, including their Halloween specials, which did allow them to become a little bit more scary at times. That being said, there were several contemporaries that Nickelodeon did show prior and post Crybaby Lane, that have similar, if not even more, disturbing elements in them. First off, re-airing right after Crybaby Lane premiered was the three-part Are You Afraid of the Dark movie titled The Tale of the Silver Sight. The movie follows the Midnight Society as they now live through a scary story instead of just telling it. While the show itself was always dark, and we'll get to a couple notable examples, the movie is incredibly dark, having a malevolent spirit pick off the original members of the Midnight Society one by one and threatening the present-day Midnight Society as well. The film ends with this colonial-era-dressed ghost boy being revealed to be an evil spirit, and he then rapidly ages into nothingness, a la Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> also airing the same year was the three-part series finale to Keenan and Kel titled Two Heads Are Better Than None. Love that movie. 
In the movie, the duo finds themselves in the home of a headless knight who kills innocent people to take their heads and then eats the bodies. What, what, the, what do you call this? Dish. It's meat. What kind of meat? I mean, it, like, did you get it from a cow or a horse, a pig, you know, pig meat or a human? Yeah. <laughs> I assure you, it's, you know, meat. Yes, the sitcom starring the Good Burger guys ended with an episode where Kel and several other characters eat human meat and it's played as a joke. Y'all know how to cook, I'll tell you that. Boy, y'all know how to cook. Boy, Bethel, mm, girl, cook at my house. <laughs> you say something? Never mind. All right. Pretty weird choice to end the series that never had supernatural or horrifying elements, but hey, whatever. We even get to see beloved comedian Milton Berle in his last ever performance be decapitated. And for the record, they're dead. He doesn't get to be all quippy and be like, oh, you know, life was bad with my body before. It's even worse now. No, he's dead. They don't come back. No quips, no nothing. Dead. Hell, the movie even ends with the implication that the Headless Knight is going to kill the couple that Keenan and Kel have befriended throughout the movie. Thanks again for that ketchup. Now, while those were just specials, there are cases of the occasional regular episode of a Nick show having very disturbing elements. Going back to Are You Afraid of the Dark, the season 5 premiere titled The Dead Man's Float is often considered one of, if not the most terrifying episodes of the series. It begins with a pint-sized J. Barshell being drowned by an invisible monster in a school pool. Not implied, not almost drowned, but was saved at the last minute. He is dead. This show had the cojones to drown a child. If that's not bad enough, the heroes of the episode find a way to make the monster visible and look at this thing. It looks like it could be right at home on the set of Return of the Living Dead. This was aimed at children. <laughs> I didn't know about that one. <laughs> this isn't even the only episode that killed a kid off in that show. The one that always scared the shit out of me as a kid was the season two episode, The Tale of the Shiny Red Bike, where a kid blames himself for his friend's death and is literally being haunted by the physical manifestation of that guilt in the form of his dead, drowned ghost friend. I tried to save you, all right? I tried. I did whatever I could. If that wasn't good enough, do whatever you want to me. I'm not here to hurt you, Mike. You're my best friend. I try to save my life. I will say, though, these examples are severely limited by their effects, and that becomes important in a moment. The monster costume, while very good for the budget, does look like it's made of rubber. And when Keenan and Kel accidentally decapitate the movie's villain, it's played for laughs. They toss his head around like it's a basketball, and the movie even plays Sweet Georgie Brown to highlight the comedy of it. When they do drop his head, you can either tell that it's the actor with his head sticking off a false floor, or you could just tell that it's a dummy that they're dubbing audio over. Now, yeah, will a little kid necessarily pick up on production flaws like that the way an adult would? Not necessarily, but they are there, and I do think the kids are smart enough to pick up on, that's not a way a body moves, that's not the way a head really looks, so it is noticeable. Now, yeah, Crybaby Lane doesn't show anything too explicit, well, 
to the level of like a melted monster man or decapitated heads of beloved comedians. That just shows this is a classic example of the scariest thing out there is your own imagination. We don't actually get to see the kids being cut in half, for example. All we see is a rusty saw on the ground, Franklin Jello describing it, and a sound effect, and our minds filled in the rest of it. And given how vivid kids' imaginations can be, we quickly surpass rubber suits and fake floors to a hard R horror movie. You know, and the imagination aspect is quite powerful because I was too scared to watch this movie. I remember, and I cannot find it for the life of me, a trailer that basically was just a creepy voice saying, in every graveyard, everybody has a little bit of life left in it. What if one evil body used all that life to come back to life? And six-year-old me was like, nope, I'm out. I can't handle this. <laughs> I cannot really imagine what this movie would have done to me as a kid. So yeah, with all that context, that this was meant for grade schoolers who had been just watching the Rugrats Halloween episodes prior to this, yeah, this was downright terrifying. Now again, this is just my speculation, knowing the outcome of the movies being banned, without being able to see any of the actual complaints that flooded in, supposedly. So, while it's sexy to say it was banned, it could also, like we mentioned in part one, be just a casualty of the rebranding that the network was going through at the time, and nothing else. It was, it was, the truth is, I believe that it was both. I, th I think it was banned and then forgotten about. We got some complaints, it was too scary, and I think they said, Herb Scannell was running Nickelodeon at the time, I think, and he said, well, we're not, I don't think we're running that again. <laughs> Yeah, I think there were, you know, there's a risk aversion, you know, it's like if they're, if they're getting complaints from parents, why bother, you know? But they weren't like really upset about it. It was just kind of like a, like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, that was, uh, you know, um, we tried. You know, I mean, we're all like, you know, I've done a lot of work for Nickelodeon, but like I was never, like, since like 1987 or something, I was never on staff there. And Peter and John were, you know, would come in to do shows and stuff like that. So it's like, we didn't really you know, have contact with the people who made those decisions. And no one ever talked to us about like, well, you know, Bob, I got to talk to you about Crybaby Lane. It was like, you know, we did the job, you know, we went and made a, made a film. We finished it. We were happy with it. They accepted it. We got paid. We moved on with our lives. Um, so I didn't really think about it that much. And it's sort of like, a, you know, I'm close with some people who were execs at Nickelodeon at the time. And, you know, it just wasn't like that big a deal. You know, it's like if we had made the movie and they said we couldn't air it, you know, that would have been that would have been like a career ender, you know, but it was like, no, they put it on the air and it probably got OK ratings and they had commercials and, you know, everybody made money. And, you know, I don't know how much they sell an ad for, but, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I don't think they had big plans to like, you know, make it make it uh, a yearly thing. They should have. <laughs> That's what's so baffling about Nickelodeon, not just with this, but in general. They really didn't have any specific big thing for kids to look forward to every Halloween. Disney had Halloween Town and a list of ever-growing DCOMs. Cartoon Network was putting out a new Scooby-Doo movie every year at this point. And heck, ABC even had The Great Pumpkin to hype up every year. Sure, Nick had an impressive list of special Halloween-themed episodes, but they never really allowed anything like this, the Keenan and Kel, or the Are You Afraid of the Dark movies to stick around long enough to become staples of the network. So even if you took the complaints from parents out of the equation, I doubt Crybaby Lane would have stuck around much longer anyways. So we now fast forward 10 years, and the original kids who watched this back in 2000 are now in college and high school. 
this is when the rumor mill begins warming up and interest in being able to watch the movie again begins to grow. So when did you become aware of the initial revitalized interest in it? I think, John, I think you were the first one who told me that there was like this online thing going on about Crybaby Lane. Yeah. And I saw, I, I, I saw one of these things. I was like, oh, that's amusing. Well, backing up a little bit. The first seeds were planted in 2007 as people were trying to determine the plot of the movie. The search would die down until about mid-2011 when interest resurged in a huge way. I can't really determine what caused this, but this Google trend shows that it really shot up in August of 2011. The search continued on various message boards across sites like 4chan and Reddit, with those who had seen the movie trying to list out the plot. Adding into the confusion, I'm sure, was the fact that the various regions around the country had different crybaby lane legends, changing which way the plot could go. As more and more information about the plot was added, many began to doubt if a movie like this could even exist. I mean, the idea that there would be three individuals so messed up to come up with a movie like this and make it for children was just laughable. Further adding into speculation of its existence was the fact that Nickelodeon reps claimed they didn't own the movie or that it didn't even exist to begin with. Now again, I can't find any concrete information on this. In my book, what I think actually happened was the poor receptionists at Nickelodeon were getting inundated with phone calls from internet sleuths all trying to do their own work, and they just got to the point that they were trying to say anything they could to get them off the line. Put yourself in their shoes. Someone calls up and says, hey, can you tell me about this Crybaby Lane movie, a movie you don't know anything about because you've only been working there for a couple months, and when you say, I don't know anything about it, well, why don't you know anything about it? Can you transfer me to someone that does? Multiply that by a ton of people calling. Eventually, they're just like, yep, doesn't exist. Hang up. Still, the fans would not be deterred. Their sleuthing would find the occasional clip here and there, and even more confirmation when a TV guide listing did in fact show that a movie titled Crybaby Lane did air on Nickelodeon that night. Around the same time, a creepypasta, which for you non-internet lingo people is basically an internet urban legend campfire story, was written purportedly by one of the film's writers. Now, far be it from me to criticize another person's writing, but who boy was this bad. It's filled with all the tropes you would see in the typical bad creepypasta. I will give it credit for using what information about the movie was out there to make it seem a little bit more believable, and it was partially responsible for bringing a ton more attention to the search for the movie. You know, as bad as it is, and I probably should just move on since there's no merit to talking about it anymore, since I do have the three of you here, and it does talk about the making of it, I can't resist to ask you how close it actually was to the production. So right off the bat, Peter's a cannibalistic serial killer. Is that true? Checks out. <laughs> so the story begins ominously. If you want to see the original Crybaby Lane, you never will. You won't ever be seeing what was originally shown on TV. And you sure as fuck won't be seeing the original Lauer made. I'm pretty sure the director, Peter Lauer, has the original copy, and it's probably on his mantle next to his snuff films, that creepy-ass fuck. Not next to it, it's one of those snuff films. So the story continues on with Peter constantly firing writers and having bizarre brainstorming sessions where he'd pitch horrific and incredibly cringeworthy story elements that were clearly put in there by an edgy writer. He describes the brainstorming sessions like this. When you were hunched over a piece of paper during those endless brainstorming sessions, you'd look up, you'd catch him just staring at you, smiling. So Bob, was that at all what the writing sessions were like? No, that never happened. Peter was just visibly staring like at a screen and just like writing. And like, I'm like, just wondering like, I don't even know what we're doing. What are we talking about? <laughs> it's like, and he were like, it appears like, Bob, this is, you know, this is great. Like, you know, <laughs> it was all like, 
The story then continues getting worse, figuratively or literally, you decide, with basically Peter just constantly pitching weird and horrific story elements that we are then supposed to believe that Nickelodeon recycled into other Nickelodeon shows, like the kids drown a squirrel at one point, that's where Sandy from Spongebob comes from, and stuff like that. The story reaches a climax with Peter showing images of dead children that he is implied to have actually killed himself, saying, this is the muse, this is what they should try to be putting on the screen. The movie comes out, images of dead kids were spliced in throughout, and that's actually what traumatized the children. The story's writer then kills himself, and I guess this alt-world Peter goes around Hollywood still scaring Jim Gaffigan, I guess. So yeah, Peter, is any of this true? Do I need to go through the movie frame by frame now? Had we had creepy snuff film images to insert into the film, we would have. Because literally every camera setup that we shot, we were, this, this film made it from the opening credits to the, or opening titles to the closing credits by the skin of its teeth. We had no money. And literally everything that we shot is in that, is in the movie. Everything, every single setup even stuff that we didn't shoot, like to the extent that worth the AC, John, if, you know, if your AC was, was doing a camera, like a focus test, and they pulled the card out of the foreground and a bird flew by, that bird is in the movie. Like we barely had what it took to complete the film. So I mean, if sn if sneaking in snuff images, yes, I would gladly have done it. You know, it would have been a better movie. So yeah, this is a pretty poorly written story, even by 2011 standards. No, no, no. It was very cleverly written to sound bad because Bob wrote it. <laughs> Despite all this, it did become quite popular and was covered by numerous YouTubers on their channels where they read creepypastas. Again, bring tons of new attention to the movie. In fact, the story actually has become so popular that it's featured in numerous other Nickelodeon creepypastas kind of creating a shared universe with Crybaby Lane as the touchstone in the middle of all of it. As 2011 continued, the search would intensify, finally leading to a VHS rip of the movie being found. Soon after it was uploaded, it was quickly taken down by Viacom, proving they actually did claim ownership of it after all. But by then, it was far too late, with other uploads popping up all across the internet. Like it or not, Crybaby Lane had escaped the Nickelodeon vault. As the internet rejoiced, Nickelodeon decided to capitalize on the hype surrounding the movie and chose to re-air the movie for the first time ever, Halloween Night on Teen Nick, as part of their The 90s Are All That block. Now fully embracing the legend that they inadvertently helped create and to begin with, the marketing hyped up its banishment from the airwaves and its lost status. The night arrives and the airing begins with Stick Stickly claiming he dug it out of the Nick vaults. Hey, what's the dealio? I know when you normally see me, it's all about you pick. Well, tonight I got a pick of my own. It only aired once due to complaints on how terrifying it was, but I found it. And I'm playing it for you. So strap in. Here's Crybaby Lane. Boy! Yes, Stick Stickly, a talking popsicle stick that I am not joking when I say was the mascot for Nickelodeon for a while, is back again. Jesus. <laughs> Regardless, though, Crybaby Lane was being viewed for the first time in over a decade. Soon, though, the mystique surrounding the movie died down, and to my knowledge, Nickelodeon's only re-aired this two more times, both of which were in 2015. Since then, the movie just went back into the Nick vault and has yet to re-emerge in any official capacity and streaming or home media of any kind. Did they ever talk to you about, do, um, Peter, uh, of putting it on DVD? I mean... They could have made some money on it. You know, they, they don't. They don't talk to me. Period. Ever since this. <laughs> <laughs>
the the criminal thing that happened on Pete and Pete was um, I did all of season three and it was a great great season and um, they were going to to release it on DVD like as they did the other seasons and um, it, they were all apparently the story I've heard is that they were all printed and sitting in a warehouse ready to go out when uh, there was a legal case with Luscious the band Luscious Jackson who appeared in one of the episodes called uh, Dance Fever or something like that. And because of that, they uh, like they couldn't get the rights to these songs and they were already, you know, part of this episode that was part of the season DVD. They didn't release it. It never got released on DVD, which was so frustrating. So frustrating that Crybaby Lane hasn't been released. Yeah, I would love to see a Shout Factory release of this movie, loaded with tons of bonus features about the making of it. Though that would make my video less relevant, so maybe just make it a bare-bones DVD. Still, though, the genie is now out of the bottle, and fans like myself have been able to make Crybaby Lane part of their annual Halloween tradition for over a decade now. Now you can watch it for free on YouTube, where several complete versions have been uploaded. Very unusual, since Viacom is usually very strict with their products being uploaded by anybody but them. To give you an example, all of my commercial compilations that I have up on the channel from Nickelodeon, if I included a few too many seconds of a theme song in it or closing credits, even if the announcer was talking over it, the video got flagged for content warning. Meanwhile, the entirety of this movie is just up and no one seems to care. This is all the YouTubes. There's like so many, so much on Crybaby Lane. <laughs> one of them says high quality. That's the one I watched. That's what I watched too. Not high quality. <laughs> it was not very high quality. Peter, what is, the, like, I know I have a DVD. I mean, I mean, I have a uh, beta copy, beta SP somewhere. Is that the highest quality that we know of that's in existence? Yeah, the beta, I mean, the beta, beta cam. Yeah, which is, it's not wonderful quality. I mean, it'd be great. I mean, where's the negative, do you think? I mean, I don't think we didn't cut the negative, did we? We cut it all on on on, on video, so the negative is probably just like you know, it, it, you know, in a vault somewhere, probably you know, in the ground. Yeah, what's a negative? <laughs> By the way, I opened up my cabinet, and he, this is my beta copy of the movie. So this for sure is got to be a lot better quality than what's on. Yeah, that's the highest quality that exists um, in, in the known universe right now. Yeah, it would be great to put it, put a, a good version of it on, on YouTube. So yeah, sadly for the time being, the grainy rips from people's VCRs or DVRs are about as clean of a copy as you can get. Unless you've interviewed the filmmakers and they were nice enough to loan you their copy to use for your web show, but that's a hypothetical. <laughs> so that now brings us to the legacy of the movie, now 21 years on. And it sounds like this is the first time you guys have watched it in quite a while. I, I didn't. Bob said he wasn't going to, and then he did. No, no. I said I, said I just didn't. I didn't think we needed to have a pre-call to discuss our strategy for how how we could look prepared. I was too lazy for that, but I would watch the movie. <laughs> it's better this way. So yeah, again, twenty-one years since the release of the movie, and now ten years since its rediscovery. Looking back, do you regret pushing the envelope so much? I mean, granted, I would much rather have something that scared the shit out of me as a kid, but was very well made and interesting versus something that was bland and not offensive. I mean, the intended audience, of course, was uh, preschoolers. <laughs>
Uh, we were, I think we appropriately, um, you know, tried try to make them shit their little pants, you know. But actually, that was not the case because we, we really, we, Bob, I mean, I thought we were making a comedy, you know. I mean, you know, yes, it had scary elements, but that just makes the, in theory, makes the funny parts funnier, but maybe it got, you know, every, every project takes on its own life, which is true. I mean, you know, I think, you know, when Peter and I were writing, no matter what we were writing, we were really trying to sort of like tell good stories and stories that like had a theme and an idea. And there's, you know, there, it, there really is a, like an idea in that story about bad influences and about, about pushing things too far and but also about being too uh too cautious which was kind of andrew's problem you know and you know at the end of the movie the triumph for andrew you know going back to uh to bennett's with with kathy and hearing you know hearing spooky stories from him you know and enjoying it and drinking coffee <laughs> um you know it's like there's it's supposed to be like inspiring to kids who like you know are are a bit too cautious and a cautionary tale for kids who are too wild. So I guess I shouldn't have been so chicken to watch it. <laughs> no, I just think that it's like, you know, yeah, I think it's a good story that's pretty well told. And, you know, and I think that as, as writers and, you know, uh, creators of popular entertainment, you know, that's what you're trying to do. I think it was the exact same messaging, Good Burger. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that the quality of the movie is really as, as you know, um, a tribute to Peter, um, you know, that like as, as you, you were a leader and like you were so uh, kind of inspired by it that you inspired everyone else to like to kind of dig deep and like to, you know, work as hard as we could. You know, we weren't making a lot of money and there wasn't a lot of glory, but we knew we were working on something special. and We all just really wanted to make it as good as we could. Yeah, I think the whole crew felt that way. I mean, it was it was a very hard shoot, but we had a lot of fun. It was cold. It was night. We were exhausted, but we were making a great film. It was fun. Well, it was the height of our career, and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> well, I think the fans' reaction to it speaks to the quality of the film overall. So have you guys been surprised about the resurgence and the love for it all these years later? Yeah, well, which is which is great. You know, I did I did on the Jim Gaffigan show, Elena. Um, I had done. I guess I did the first season. I came back to do the second season of that show, and somebody t said to me, "You know, there, there's there's a there's a production coordinator who really she really wants to meet you because she's a huge fan of Crybaby Lane." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> she's like, "She she wants." She wants to say hi to you because of Crybaby Lane, but she's too nervous to. So whenever you come through the office, she hides. <laughs> She'd probably heard the cannibal story, thought it was true. Well, that could be that. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, she maybe could have been perfectly reasonable for that. Yeah. Um, might have eaten, you know, could have eaten her. But but so ultimately what happened, I never met her. I never met her, but I, I went by her off, I, I went by her desk one day. And there was a poster that she had created of Crybaby Lane for me to autograph. It was this this weird um, kind of like a, you know a super fan thing. But it was but I, I, I never never met her. But I only I only met her through a poster of that she made of Crybaby Lane for, for some. 
It's just, it's, it's nice to know that there's people out there that whom it impacted, even if it's only like three people. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine being that dorky and making a DVD case or a fan poster. As we begin to wrap up, taking away all the urban legends and lost media and all that stuff that surrounded the movie, what do you think its legacy should be? Well, personally, I would like to um, the movie. I would like to make the movie of the making of the movie, uh, and, and of the of the the dark undercurrent. I mean, I would you know, that would feed into the, uh, the the myths that have grown up around it. That that there was more truth to that than than is known. There's there's a there's a there's a sequel, Crybaby Lane, that tells us like the true story of what happened during the making of this little low budget film. We should do a remake. Yeah, a remake or a sequel? I think I think a remake and then a sequel. My you know my daughter was two years old and she we needed a baby we didn't have any money for a baby so we used my daughter, um, and you know I asked her that they you know my mother her mother asked her if she had ever seen the movie and I said she's seen it, and she said no she's never seen it she was too scared to watch it, you know like throughout throughout her life, um, and so I told her like just the other day she's twenty two now you know and i i told her that i, I rewatched the movie and she's like all she asked was was it scary it's like she's still like sort of like too freaked out to watch it and my son's never seen it either i'd like i'd like them to watch it you know i think uh, i think my daughter would get a kick of a kick out of it. i don't know if my son would be into it um you know i'm really i'm really glad that like i could be a part of this thing it's you know it's like you know it's a long time ago but it was a, a, a special memory and we you know it was like going to war and these these guys are like my you know <laughs> they're like your my war buddies yeah, absolutely it was a it was a, I, it was a it was a blast and an adventure and i'm done on a wing and a prayer you know yeah i'm so proud to have been involved uh, involved and um i want more people to see it this is so it sounds like andrew you're gonna make that happen a little bit you know we should do like a uh, a crybaby lane, uh, you know, like a, like a uh, fest or something. We can go back to the abandoned town where you guys filmed it to do it. It'll be great. We're going to look for the worms. We're going to look for the combine and so on. We just can't drink the water. Projected on, the, on a wall of a cemetery out there somewhere. Well, there you have it. A complete oral history of the movie Too Scary for Nickelodeon, Crybaby Lane. I just want to thank Peter, Bob, and John for stopping by and helping shed light on this cult classic Nickelodeon movie. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew, for, for having us on. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. This was, uh, this was a treat. I'm just glad you guys weren't as lost as the movie was. <laughs> well, until next time, I hope you enjoyed our time together and have a newfound love for this lost Nickelodeon classic. Mm -hmm.